welcome to another edition of the UK Law Weekly Podcast with me, your host, Marcus Cleaver. This week we're going to be looking at the case of Sevilla and Marex Financial Limited. The citation for this case is 2020 UKSC 31. And the case that we're going to be looking at this week involves a slightly obscure area of company law and the bid by the Supreme Court to offer some clarity. As with many cases in this area, it unfortunately begins with some dodgy dealings. Here the culprit is a man by the name of Carlos Sevilla, who owned a couple of companies that were incorporated in the British Virgin Islands. The other party, Marex Financial, originally brought a case against the companies for sums that were due under a contract. That case went to a trial before the commercial court, but before judgment was officially handed down, the judge gave a confidential draft of the decision to the parties. Ultimately, Marex won that case and got an order made in their favour for $5.5 million, on top of a costs order for £1.65 million. But it appears that as soon as Mr. Sevilla saw that on the horizon, he transferred around $9.5 million from the account of the companies into his personal control. This meant that only a month later, the company's accounts were pretty much stripped bare, and Marex was unable to receive payment of either the judgment payment or the costs. A few months after that, Sevilla placed the companies into liquidation in the British Virgin Islands with debts of allegedly more than $30 million. However, many of those debts were owed to Mr. Sevilla, and in fact the only other creditor was Marex. That is its own little thing, as Marex continues to claim that the liquidation proceedings should be considered as ongoing, because the liquidator should have investigated this debt and gone after Sevilla personally. The current proceedings we are dealing with today are an action in tort against Mr. Sevilla for both procuring a violation of Marex's rights under the original judgment in the commercial court, and also for intentionally causing Marex to suffer loss by unlawful means. As a result, the large part of the claim was for the millions of dollars owed under that original judgment, but in the Court of Appeal it was successfully argued that such a claim is barred under the principle of reflective loss. At this stage, it is worth going into this principle a little deeper, so we can understand how it applies to this case. It originates in the idea that if a company is harmed, then it is the company, as a corporate entity, that should sue. Also known as the rule in Foss and Harbottle, a case from 1843, it follows that someone who is a shareholder in that company should not have a separate right to sue for the diminution in the value of their shares. After all, the loss is the company's loss, and if it is able to recover the loss by way of a legal claim, then the share value will be restored in that way, instead of through separate legal proceedings. In other words, the shareholder's loss is reflected in the company's loss, and so a claim by a shareholder will be barred. That is all well and good, but what does that have to do with the proceedings before us today? It's not as if Marex is a shareholder, so why should their claim be barred? Well, since the decision in Foss and Harbottle, the principle of reflective loss has been greatly expanded by the courts in England and Wales. Most relevant to us is the 2004 Court of Appeal decision in Gardner and Parker, where Lord Newberger held that the rule should apply to creditors as well. If this were applied here, then it would mean that Marex, as a creditor, would not be allowed to bring an action, 
and so it was up to the Supreme Court to decide how far the principle of reflective loss should extend. In his judgment, Lord Reed goes back to the modern origins of the principle as it has developed in relation to company law. Notably, this means looking at the 1982 case of Prudential Assurance Company Limited and Newman Industries Limited No. 2. That judgment essentially restates the rule in Foss and Harbottle that only a company can sue for the harm that is done to a company, and makes it clear that this will bar a claim by a shareholder in these circumstances. This was then followed in Johnson and Gore Wooden Company, despite various practical issues in this area of the law, such as the fact that it equates the loss to a company directly with a diminution of the share price. Furthermore, that judgement is mostly centred around the calculation of damages and the bid to avoid double recovery. That is a fine sentiment because it is important that a person is not able to recover the same loss twice, but here it can often mean that there is no remedy whatsoever for shareholders if the company either decides not to make a claim or ends up settling a legal case for less than the full amount. As the case law developed even further in more recent judgments, such as Gardner and Parker 2004, it has now become apparent that there is a need to distinguish between two different types of cases. The first are classic claims under Foss and Harbottle, in other words where there has been a diminution in the value of shares owned by a claimant, but the company has a cause of action against the wrongdoer. Those cases will always be barred because of the principle of reflective loss. However, the second type of case, which covers all other types of claims where the company still has a cause of action, can proceed, albeit subject to standard rules prohibiting double recovery. Applying this to the current proceedings, Lord Reed concluded that the more recent case law, such as Gardner and Parker, should be overruled, and as the claim by Merex falls into the second category, their appeal should be allowed. In fact, all seven judges ended up allowing the appeal, but that doesn't mean we are quite done with the judgement yet, because a minority wanted to simply abandon the principle of reflective loss altogether, and so that is worth exploring further. Lord Sales, alongside Lady Hale and Lord Kitchen, went back to the decision in Prudential Assurance, and held that this ought not to exclude the recovery by a shareholder when the loss that they suffer is factually different from the loss that was suffered by the company. It was argued that one of the main problems down the years has actually been the use of the word reflective when describing the principle. After all, the loss suffered by the shareholder and the loss suffered by the company are not the same loss, and thus are not reflective of one another. Any concerns about double recovery are unfounded because this is the sort of thing that can be avoided by proper case management and doesn't need its own separate, overreaching principle. I think that overall this judgement can be seen as a reaction to the decision in the Court of Appeal. After that was handed down there was outcry from the legal and commercial sector about the operation of the reflective loss principle and how it had gone too far. With that in mind it was unsurprising to see the Supreme Court take this opportunity to roll it back and the only question was how far they would go. In the end that was where the justices were split, and it was only by the smallest of margins that the reflective loss principle still remains with us at all. I would suggest that if it had been confined to the history books then that would not have been such a bad thing. It may seem somewhat dramatic to all of a sudden abandon 40 odd years of case law, 
and that may have fed into the trepidation of the majority, but the judgement by Lord Sales was undeniably convincing. Ultimately, the driving force behind the principle is the prevention of double recovery, but if we know that this can be prevented by other means, then it doesn't leave much room for reflective loss to still exist. The majority did leave it in place, but instituted significant limits on its scope. For some, that might seem like a fair middle ground, but the problem is that this will still end up barring a number of legitimate claims and closes down avenues for recovery for those who have suffered a loss. It has long been the case that the common law does not move in a drastic fashion, else it would create uncertainty. But part of being a judge at the highest level has to also be about being prepared to take big, tough decisions. And in this instance, four of the seven justices didn't step up to the plate. Well, thank you very much for tuning into this podcast episode, and thanks as ever to bensound.com who provide the theme music. Other special thanks this week goes to Courtney D. Jones, who left a five-star review of the podcast on iTunes. That is hugely appreciated. We're nearly at 200 reviews of the podcast now, which is totally amazing. Remember, if you do get time to leave a review of the podcast on iTunes, then that is really helpful. It just helps other people to discover the podcast, and it pushes us up the charts as well. I'll be back with another episode next week, but for now, bye!